Welcome to Fertility Help Hub's podcast. I'm Eloise, the founder and editor, and each week we bring you expert interviews, reader stories, holistic products, and more. Subscribe to our podcast for free so you never miss an episode. Welcome. Today I'm speaking to the leading UK fertility lawyer for modern families, Louisa Gevart. Hello. Good morning, Louisa. Good morning, Eloise. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm really looking forward to our chat. As am I. We've got some very meaty things to talk about. um, And I know that you have huge experience in fertility law. So very pleased to be sharing your wisdom and expertise with the listeners today. So my first question is, tell us about you. What led you to become a fertility lawyer? Well, that's a really good question. I suppose I've always been interested in cutting edge and evolving issues in law and sort of particularly those that really matter to parents, children and families. I'm probably intrinsically interested, you know, in people's day to day lives. And I started out over 20 years ago as a mainstream family lawyer, focusing on children, divorce, family finances. And in 2008, I was asked to deal with the UK's first international commercial surrogacy case, a case we'd never seen before and no one else in the office really knew what to do with. And it involved British parents who'd entered into a commercial surrogacy in Ukraine. And very sadly, their twins had been born stateless and parentless there due to an international conflict of law. And they risked being put into a state orphanage if they couldn't travel safely home uh, with their intended parents who only had limited tourist visas and so they sort of got stuck. So I uh, took on the case um, and applied successfully for parental orders in the High Court and I got the twins home safely and really my specialist fertility and family law practice for modern families grew from there and over the last decade I've been hugely privileged to deal with and a great number of really challenging and often landmark cases which have changed and improved law for parents, children, patients and families, ranging from embryo storage law and fertility preservation, today's topic, to posthumous conception, surrogacy, parenting disputes. And all of that led to me launching my own specialist law firm, Louisa Gevart Associates, to meet the growing need that there really is in the UK for specialist fertility and family law services. Do you feel as though um, as times are changing and um, people are creating families in different ways, which is becoming more accepted, which is fantastic, do you think that there is more of a need for the kind of law that you do? Absolutely. It is a growing area and life around us is changing so quickly medically, in terms of societal changes, the pandemic, people's expectations for their own lives, their future families, their relationships with other people. And I think the fact that it's getting harder and harder to get on the the property ladder, people are spending longer in education, people are finding it harder to feel confident financially to start a family or to settle down with somebody or go it perhaps as a solo parent that what's happening is we're we're delaying parenthood whereas in the 70s we were seeing you know the average age of first-time mum in her early 20s that's now early 30s and it's rising and the average age now of somebody who's having 
IVF treatment is maybe 35 and a half in the UK. And so all of this is pushing our biological clocks and it's, it, it's really beginning to, to build up into a bit of a fertility problem, a growing fertility problem here in the UK. And of course, that means more people are needing to access fertility treatment and, uh, and help to, to build modern families. Um, and that in turn is driving demand for expert and specialist fertility law services. That probably leads us on to the next point, doesn't it? Why people are starting to, or, you know, it's becoming more commonplace to preserve fertility and to freeze eggs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, fertility is fragile. It's really precious. And I think, you know, it's important for people to know that it can be lost or impaired at any time. Our fertility represents our biological legacy, and our ability to have our own biological children. And it can be lost in a minute through illness, accident or death. And that applies not only to our own fertility, but also those of our loved ones. And it needs and it deserves greater consideration and protection. It always seems slightly ironic to me that we spend lots of time and energy protecting other aspects of our life, but invest often so little time and energy on protecting our fertility you know we undergo smear tests to try and manage and prevent cervical cancer or prostate checks if we're a man we have regular breast checks and mammograms we're busy taking out life insurance policies and critical illness cover we spend time and money buying buildings and contents insurance and car insurance and yet often we don't think to take steps to actively protect our fertility. And and fertility in women fundamentally declines with age. And women are subject to a particularly aggressive biological clock and the pressures that are associated with that. And on top of that, fertility can be lost through cancer and the life-saving treatment that often it needs, through medical negligence, sadly. And there are people who have impaired or absent fertility, perhaps, through you know lack of healthy sperm and absence of a womb if they weren't born with one perhaps they get premature ovarian failure and of course there are then those people who are looking to transition their gender all of whom need to think carefully uh, about fertility and so it's not something we should take for granted um, and it is really something to, to to reflect on carefully that leads me the next question which you've kind of just touched on now what are the different kinds of fertility preservation cases that you've come across i've been really fortunate to deal with a wide range of fertility preservation cases um and the fragility of fertility really came to light for me in a case that i dealt with over the summer of 2018 when i opted for a wife whose husband was very sadly and terribly tragically fatally injured in a road traffic accident on his way to work. And the couple had been in the early stages of IVF treatment and they'd had a clinic appointment and they'd had various tests done, but they hadn't yet completed all of the HFEA legal consent forms and they were due to return a few days later to the clinic to do just that and start their treatment. And the husband was on life support at the time of the accident, but they had prior to the accident discussed and agreed as they were a careful couple who had 
spent a lot of time thinking about fertility treatment, agreed that if anything were to happen to one of them, they would want the other to be able to conceive a child posthumously. So this became a, a unique, a very groundbreaking uh, case. It was an emergency application that we took to the Court of Protection for permission to legally harvest the husband's sperm, store it, and gain permission for it to be used by the wife posthumously because he hadn't given the consent in writing that you need under law to be able to do just that. And the application was successful and it was the first of its kind in the UK and important because it recognises for the first time the importance of individual fertility and biological legacy. Traditionally, the Court of Protection looks after and protects people's property, assets, and their own well-being if they're unable to do that for themselves. And so this case, I think, offers hope to others in future and a real basis upon which to start to build greater recognition and protection of individual fertility. But that's not the only sort of case that, that I've been dealt with, I've dealt with over the years. I've dealt with cases where there's been an unexpected death, very sadly, due to cancer diagnosis, where perhaps that person has already stored eggs and sperm prior to starting treatment. And the partner that's been left has wanted to explore and think about whether they could still have a child posthumously. I've dealt with breast cancer cases where a woman has been diagnosed and has then had quite a lot of pressure to undergo an emergency uh, fertility freeze cycle uh, ahead of life-saving treatment where she's perhaps saved embryos with her partner rather than saved her eggs and stored those separately and then over time the relationship was broken down due to the pressures of the illness and treatment and the ex-partner has withdrawn consent to the use of the embryos and similarly I've dealt with cases where couples relationships have got into difficulties um, and they've had frozen embryos that perhaps partway through treatment or looking to, to start a family or, or, or conceive a sibling and, and, and how that works out in terms of family building and completion. And also I've in recent years dealt with cases where I've been brought in as an expert witness to deal with cases where there's been uh, medical negligence uh, and someone's fertility has been lost perhaps through misdiagnosis of a, a condition or disease or an operation that's gone wrong. And it's meant that people have been left without the ability to conceive their own biological child or perhaps carry a pregnancy and need surrogacy. So I've been brought in to advise on the law and the legal issues around that and to help support claims through medical negligence for fertility, preservation and treatment costs. And I'm really pleased to say that uh, I played an integral part in um, a landmark decision that came out of the Supreme Court in April this year. Year. So it's only a few months old where the Supreme Court ruling for the first time ruled that where there'd been a misdiagnosis of cervical cancer for a, a young woman that rendered her unable to, to conceive with her own eggs or carry a pregnancy, she should be entitled to claim fertility preservation and treatment damages uh, for donor uh, eggs and fertility treatment and commercial surrogacy in the US. Uh, and she secured a significant settlement for the fertility aspects of over half a million pounds on top of damages for other medical negligence claims to help her build a family in future. And so we're going to see more and more 
uh, focus, I think, on fertility preservation as people really begin to appreciate and see, you know, uh, what's possible uh, and just how important and precious fertility is. Gosh, that's such a wide spectrum of cases. And uh, I guess for being in such an emotive space, how do you separate um, your legal expertise and your professionalism with such heartfelt situations that you come across all the time? Well, my heart really goes out to, to anyone that's encountering problems. It's such an intensely personal and sensitive area of people's lives. And so I always try and draw alongside people and, and get to know people. Um, and people rely on me to, to provide a professional service and to be as understanding, but as also thorough and objective. Um, sometimes a sense of humour is needed um, and a level of care to, to look at not only the upsides, but also the risks uh, and how those can be mitigated and avoided. And so it's really, I always take the view that it's a question of making sure that, that people's family building and the legal and practical action plans are tailored. And that I spend time getting to know what you know people want to achieve and understanding why that is the case and then helping them understand what's possible and what's not so that they can make informed decisions, decisions that feel right for them and with confidence that they understand, you know, where the strengths and weaknesses are, what's possible, what's not, so that people have the best possible chance. All too often, I find people come to me and they're in a bit of a heap. Their fertility treatment perhaps or their family building efforts haven't worked and they've unfortunately had quite a lot of short-term tries and protocols perhaps at treatments where you know they've said right well we'll just try this and if that doesn't work then we'll try something else and I'm a huge believer in, in, in taking time as soon as people can to put together a plan A and if necessary a plan B and even a plan C and to forward plan because particularly for women where they're biological clock declines it's really important to make sure that you maximize and preserve fertility as soon as you can so that if your first IVF treatment doesn't work and perhaps your second doesn't work or life gets in the way you have a fallback position and perhaps you have options that you might not have otherwise absolutely and we've seen that haven't we i mean um on fertility help hub we recently published an article around egg freezing and how clinics have seen a rise in the number of people freezing their eggs due to covid and the pandemic what what's your take on that those trends and why it's become um more popular to do at the moment it's really interesting i've been giving some thought to this in recent days and weeks and i first of all looked at what the trends were for fertility preservation pre-pandemic and the main headline fact was that there had been a big uptake in egg freezing cycles and that had reached almost 2000 cycles in 2018. And with that, there'd been a big uptake in embryo and egg storage. It had gone up fivefold, according to the HFEA, to just under 9000 freezing cycles in 2018. And that's a huge jump when you look at the figures for 2013, just five years prior to that, at 1,500 cycles. And 55% of patients pre-pandemic who were freezing their eggs in 2018 were single women. And 44% of patients who were freezing eggs were heterosexual couples. So I looked at that and I thought, well, that was interesting. 
And I thought, well, what's the corollary on thawing and using frozen eggs in fertility treatment? And of 88%, interestingly, of patients who thawed their own eggs were heterosexual couples, but it still reflected only a small group. There were only 615 cycles using thawed eggs in 2018. So the picture pre-pandemic, more and more people were freezing, but there hadn't been sort of a knock-on effect of all of those people yet thawing them for use in treatment. And the HFEA had reported that the rapid growth in demand for fertility treatment in the UK had begun to stabilise at around 68,500 cycles of IVF and another 5,500 of donor insemination cycles. So sort of 74,500 total treatment cycles in the UK with an overall 23% uh, IVF birth rate success rate. So there was some positive messaging, but it was caveated still with, you know, there are still no guarantees with this. So the growing demand for egg freezing, I think, has been intensified uh, because of COVID and because of medical technology. Medical technology is much better now at freezing and thawing eggs than it was. We've now got new flash freezing techniques called vitrification. And as we've already discussed, I think more women are seeking to delay parenthood, a career, housing ladder, education, financial stability. And I think being perhaps a little bit more discerning about settling down and parenting with a partner. And there's better awareness as well that more and more talk and coverage about fertility treatment and preservation all over social media and amongst friends and colleagues. But I think it's equally important that people understand that freezing eggs doesn't guarantee a baby. It's not a guaranteed insurance policy. And the main influencing factor for egg freezing is age. Mm-hmm. and the age at which people freeze their eggs and medics say the best time to freeze eggs is in a woman's 20s and early 30s because egg quality declines after age 35 and according to the hfea statistics four out of five cases using frozen eggs is still unsuccessful uh, and in 2016 18 percent of ivf treatment was successful using frozen eggs and so there's still a way to go And I think it's important for people to understand that it's not guaranteed, it is expensive, and there is an emotional roller coaster that goes with it because I think people, women, get their hopes up. You know, when I've I've had my eggs harvested, they're tucked up, they're frozen at the clinic, they're there and waiting when I want to start my family. And if that treatment then using those eggs doesn't work, it can leave people feeling incredibly unfulfilled and distressed. Um, you know, when people don't end up with a, a healthy baby and a biological child. Absolutely. I think that also perhaps the rise in egg freezing at the moment because of the pandemic, do you think it's because people on a social level aren't having as much of an opportunity to meet a potential partner to have a child with if they want to do it with someone else? Yeah, I mean, dating's hard, isn't it, in a pandemic when we've got social distancing um, and lockdowns and travel restrictions and economic issues. It's enough to put a downer on anyone's dating life. Um, But I think more widely, the COVID-19 pandemic has created, you know, what everyone terms a new normal. There's greater uncertainty. 
about our health and others. There's restrictions, there's economic loss, and it makes it much harder not only to meet people, but also to plan and have the confidence to start a much wanted family. And this is, I think, going to intensify existing fertility and family building trends. We're going to see more emphasis on fertility preservation and more demand for egg and sperm freezing and embryo freezing. I think people are going to want to buy themselves some breathing time or at least try to, to see what's going to happen, how their life is going to pan out, how that of their friends and family are, what's going to happen at work. And that's going to drive more fertility treatment because people are going to need that to use their frozen eggs, sperm and embryos. We're going to see more delayed and later life parenthood and a rise in age of first time mums and dads in the UK. I think we're going to see more uptake of modern and diverse family forms. People are going to, to build their families differently, perhaps using more known donors, perhaps being solo parents, more uptake of surrogacy, donor eggs and sperm. And greater consideration, I think, on posthumous conception, because we've really been faced this year with huge loss of life and illness in a way that many of us have never encountered in our lives. And I think that really brings what was otherwise perceived as quite sort of unusual and rare into closer focus. And more consideration on the financial costs, not only of accessing treatment, but the cost of becoming a parent. And I think people will think carefully about the size of family that they want. And I think on top of that, people need to appreciate that we've seen declines, steady declines in fertility levels over the last 50 years, particularly across Western society. And COVID, I think, brings into focus the fact that fertility isn't secure um, and will drive fertility preservation. But on top of all of that, it's harder to build a family at the moment because COVID has cancelled and delayed fertility treatment cycles, storage cycles people's ability to feel well enough to go to the clinic there have been longer waiting times and it's more difficult to afford the cost of fertility treatment and storage cycles i mean the average cost of a egg freezing um, cycle is anywhere from three and a half to five thousand pounds and storage costs for eggs every year are 125 to 350 pounds and then to use those frozen eggs to thaw them and transfer them it's another two and a half thousand and that's a lot of money particularly for people in the middle of a global pandemic and those coming out of it and people are worried they're stressed and anxious about treatment staying well the emotional roller coaster that goes with treatment anyway without all the additional stresses and worries brought about by a pandemic and i think there's anxiety because people's windows particularly women's windows have tightened up to preserve their fertility and this has become apparent for people who've got rapidly age-related fertility decline perhaps a cancer diagnosis or faced with an unexpected illness and death of a loved one so there's an awful lot that's going on at the moment that's affecting people's ability to access treatment think about fertility preservation um, and get themselves into a position where it's even feasible To your point about cost, it may not take one attempt as well. You may need numerous egg collections at a cost dependent on age. So it all can add up, can't it? You're absolutely right. It's not guaranteed. Um, the average success rate is about 23% of IVF cycles for 
patients under the age of 43. Um, and we know that the older uh, the lady, particularly for egg freezing, the, the less eggs and, and the poorer quality they tend to be. So for some women of you know, a, a younger age, they perhaps can collect 15 eggs, but not all of those will, will survive. Perhaps the, the freezing and the thawing process, perhaps not all of them will, will develop. Um, into embryos that are viable um, and not all of them if any will, will successfully result in transfer and of course also with, with egg freezing it is an invasive procedure it does involve an anaesthetic and sedation and there is a small risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome OHSS which can be quite severe and even fatal in some very rare cases You've got to take injections and medication, visit the clinic, and there can be an element of discomfort, bloating, fatigue, pain, and also other tests that you have to go through for infectious diseases like hepatitis and HIV. So although the process headline headlines with two to three weeks and you can get it all done, there's, there, there's a lot to it. And it is a big investment um, and it, it's a huge investment for anyone at, at this point in time. I have a, I used to have a colleague I worked with who um, froze her eggs due to age and hadn't met the right partner or had, was in a new relationship. So didn't know at that point whether she would be freezing her eggs with his sperm or as eggs. And she decided to freeze them as eggs and was very disappointed with the amount and the quality that they, they felt that they had got. And actually she, I mean, this is not the case for everyone, but she's since ended up having a baby naturally with her partner and hasn't yet touched those eggs. So I almost feel like that was an insurance policy for her, but it ended up not being the outcome that she would hoped it would have secured, if that makes sense. And it is really interesting that you say that because the the level of, emotional attachment particularly I think women experience with the freezing and the storage of their eggs can't be underestimated and it, it brings into focus issues of storage and some of the legal issues around fertility preservation of eggs sperm and embryos and particularly storage limits how long are men and women able to store their eggs and their sperm for that sort of perception? Well, I've got them, you know, that's they're there if I want to use them and they're mine. And there's a growing consensus that the storage limits in the UK are just too restrictive. Standard storage uh, terms in law are up to 10 years, unless people qualify for extended storage up to 55 years uh, in qualifying cases where there is premature infertility and this can really cause a great deal of, of anxiety and stress for people because women of course are particularly encouraged to store their eggs if they're going to when they're most fertile in their 20s and early 30s but they might not be ready to use them when they're in their mid or late 30s um, and then they are finding that there is this legal pressure as to what to do with them. Do they either use them or lose them in, in, in blunt terms? And that's really, really hard. Now, 
there's been a small extension um, in some cases of a further two years for legal storage of egg sperm and embryos for patients who were caught up in the first lockdown uh, earlier this year where fertility treatment was temporarily suspended and delayed at UK licensed clinics. Um, and the corona storage regs for gametes and embryos came into force on the 1st of July 2020. And this gives an extra two years storage, up to 12 years standard storage, but it only applies to those patients who had eggs, sperm and embryos in storage at a UK fertility clinic on the 1st of July this year. And so those people that have stored after the 1st of July don't take the benefit of that extra two years. And to get that extra two years, uh, that patient group needs to provide written consent from all the gamete providers in writing. Uh, to storage up to 12 years, although that, can, that consent can be provided either before or after the 1st of July. And of course, issues around storage and is someone prematurely infertile or not and have they given the right consent and how long have eggs and sperm and embryos been stored can cause problems uh, in a number of ways because it disproportionately discriminates against women um, and it reduces their reproductive choice. And we need, in my view, longer storage terms because we need it for social purposes, for egg freezing purposes, because women need more time to build careers. They're leaving it later. The social and demographic data is showing that. And so the law and the restrictions that apply around that seem outdated in terms of women's expectations and needs now. And there is an ongoing government consultation, interestingly, on gamete and embryo storage law in the UK. And on the 13th of May, so only a few months ago, the HFEA uh, gave a written uh, submission in response to the government consultation by the Department of Health and Social Care saying that it recommended government consider increasing the length of time patients can store egg sperm and embryos uh, moving forward. So that's an area to watch. What do you think about the surrogacy uh, legalities? Because I know they're very archaic, aren't they? Yes, I mean, I've campaigned for many years now um, for there to be reform of outdated surrogacy law. It's more than 30 years out of date and it was designed uh, as a last minute um, adjunct to IVF law in the early 1990s. And it left intended parents treated in law as egg and sperm donors. Uh, without legal status and rights for their much wanted child at birth. And that leaves surrogate born children in unresolved and uncertain legal positions at birth, particularly in overseas settings where they can be born stateless without citizenship and passports or parents in law. It can leave surrogates with unwanted legal and financial responsibility for children. And real, you know, quite serious issues in terms of, of, of securing family units and requiring uh, post-birth court applications to court. So there is an ongoing process and uh, as a result of many years lobbying by myself and, and others, the Law Commission of England, Wales and Scotland was tasked with uh, drawing up new law for surrogacy um, to put together new legislation uh, for there to be some fundamental changes. And we're hoping for that uh, draft legislation to come through next year. There were some draft findings where they produced a pathway and that pathway would result in an at-birth legal recognition of intended parents 
Um, so it would all be done sort of prior to the birth um, with a very short window for the surrogate to, to, to provide final consent uh, straight after the birth. But that will only apply to UK domestic surrogacy cases um, and it won't apply to those that build families through surrogacy and perhaps egg donation or sperm donation overseas and they will still need to go through um, an in-depth post-birth parental order process because there are international aspects. You've got um, surrogates and perhaps partners and organisations involved and other lawyers with other legal systems in other jurisdictions, other approaches to uh, family building and the use of commercial surrogate arrangements, uh, commercial payments to agencies, commercial payments to egg donors, for example, all of which engage UK public public policy law. So it is interesting with fertility uh, treatment and preservation issues because one of the uh, key drivers I think for many people to go overseas for surrogacy is the outdated law here, the uncertainty, will I get my baby at the end of it, will the surrogate change their mind, will I find a surrogate because of all the restrictions here, there aren't you know a wealth of them available. But also particularly for egg donation because the ability to access donor eggs and there to be choice over that is, is limited here compared with other jurisdictions where they have commercial egg donor banks where you can have much wider choice to perhaps find egg don donors with same physical attributions, uh, ethnicity um, and availability. So sperm donors as well? Um, I think to, to a lesser extent um, it's easier to produce sperm. Um, it's not to say that, you know, lack of sperm, fertility impairment on the male side isn't, you know, um, almost equal in an in infertility picture. But it tends to be uh, the, the surrogacy with egg donation that, that, that tends to be, in my experience, a driver for overseas surrogacy. But in terms of just uh, general donor conception, of course, sometimes people go overseas for, um, as you mentioned, a wider selection of egg and sperm donors, don't they? Because there are different legalities around anonymous versus open. Yes, um, we do have a shortage of sperm donors here in the UK. Um, we did a few years ago attempt to, to build up um, a sperm donor bank and that failed due to lack of funding and lack of take up. It only got £77,000 worth of grant. Um, and actually to, to donate sperm um, and to, to screen sperm donors takes a lot of lead-in time and investment. And so that didn't work uh, at all well. So actually, we are in a position at the moment where we import a lot of sperm from Scandinavia and America um, for the purposes of accessing sperm donors through a licensed treatment setting here in the UK. Um, and if one uses imported sperm at a UK licensed clinic, it's done on the basis that there is identity release. So the um, sperm donors details are recorded on the HFEA uh, register of donors so that the donor conceived child when they reach um, 16 can apply for non-identifying information and from age 18 identifying information so that they can perhaps contact their, their, their biological sperm donor um, and uh, learn more about their, their biological origins. So the basis of licensed treatment here and the use of donor uh, sperm and eggs is on an identity release basis. And for those that don't, for whatever reason, want an identity release basis, it can be a factor in them deciding to go abroad for what's 
termed as anonymous donation but of course that's a bit of a misnomer and it's one of the things I talk to my 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 clients and families about because in the digital world that we are and with the rapid proliferation in genetic direct-to-consumer testing through ancestry.com and all these other um, DIY direct-to-consumer tests it's it's getting easier and easier to, to track biological parents and so this concept and idea that you can remain anonymous um, is, is, is really one that I think can really trip people up because I think if you have an inquisitive donor conceived child or individual um, you know they, they, they can make great inroads in, into finding and accessing that information and some of the research and experience that's come from donor conceived people over the last 10-20 years has been that for even those where it was kept quiet and their parents didn't tell them there was an intrinsic sense often a lot of the time that they knew something about it they couldn't perhaps quite put their finger on it but they had a sense that perhaps their parents or one of them wasn't their biological parent. Um, and it's something that, that, that can, can live with people um, and, and be a trigger for them to, to want to, to check and find out more. Absolutely. I, I often get people um, coming to me because purely because I have donor conceived children asking about um, thoughts on telling the children or not and open versus anonymous. And I can only talk about my own personal experience and what our choices were for us personally. But as you mentioned, the overwhelming sort of thoughts that I have read or seen amongst donor-conceived adults is that being transparent about it um, goes a long way. And also having the ability to track that person down should they want to or half-siblings is sometimes leaves the ball in their court rather than the parent making that decision for them. It's not to say that um, anonymous donation isn't okay, but it's a personal decision, isn't it? It's just important for people to be armed with what might happen in the future when they make that decision. You're absolutely right. It is an incredibly personal decision and there can be all sorts of factors from you know, ethnic, religious, social, uh, factors that can weigh into people's decision making on that um, and it is intensely personal but I think also there is a growing trend um, and understanding in the importance of genetic and family health information and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this develops for families and particularly modern families and those built through assisted conception in years to come as we move from um, a treating a medical problem to a preventative and precision healthcare model and with the uptake uh, and the, the growing affordability of genomic sequencing and genetic testing. And the new treatments that are coming on stream where you can develop personalised cancer treatments that sort of tackle biologically the cancer cells rather than nuking the whole body through chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Um, and the number of new treatments we've got for other genetic diseases. I think people are going to want and take a greater interest in their genetic makeup and where that comes from. And I think we're going to see increasing dialogue and narrative and public debate on this and how that ties into family building uh, and the use of donor gametes. Completely agree. In terms of, just whilst we still have you, any tips for anyone who's thinking about fertility preservation and treatment? Yes, top tips, always useful to have. I think don't take your or a loved one's fertility for granted. 
make sure that you get your fertility levels and your functionality checked out medically. Think carefully about if and when you want to start a family and plan early for success. Think about budgeting and saving up and make sure that you do good research. I'd also advise early specialist legal advice. And I say that for a number of reasons, because there are a raft of issues that need to be thought about with undertaking fertility treatment in terms of how long your eggs, sperm and embryos can be stored for, the terms on which they can be used by you or a loved one. What happens if there's a change in circumstances? You need to withdraw consent or vary consent. You need to import embryos, eggs and sperm from abroad or export them to another jurisdiction for treatment. And also so that you understand the fundamentals around legal status of the child you're eventually looking to conceive. And that's in terms of legal parenthood, who goes on the birth certificate, who gets day-to-day legal decision-making for parental responsibility, who's going to be financially responsible, and what sort of legal rights and claims other parents or egg and service providers will have in relation to that child. And so good specialist legal advice can really help protect the welfare of parents, children and families, and it can give peace of mind to people and help them make informed decisions and it can help them put into place written agreements whether that's a known donor agreement a co-parenting agreement a parenting agreement um, and it can help them avoid the pitfalls uh, before they happen and minimize the risks so they can be a really proactive exercise Um, on top of that I think it's really important to understand you safeguard the HFEA consent forms, um, that you make sure they're properly filled in and that you understand and they're tailor-made to you, um, and that people formulate proper action plans, not only medically, but also legally and practically for family building, so that you do have a plan A in mind. If that doesn't work, you've perhaps got a plan B and a plan C to fall back on, whether that's using your own gametes, eggs and sperm, whether that's using donor eggs and sperm, whether you're looking at surrogacy or a modern form of family building. And that's great advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Louisa. And if people want to contact you to find out more about how you might be able to help them on a personal level, um, I will include the links for, for contacting you in the description here so that they can find you. And yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to end with? Wonderful. Well, thank you. I do have a really topical, uh, interesting blog that goes on my website at Louisa Gevart Associates, where I talk about all sorts of issues from ovarian rejuvenation to parental disputes um, and egg storage and freezing and all sorts of issues around surrogacy. So it's a really good one for people to to keep an eye on. It's free, it's easy to access um, and hopefully it will be of interest to, to your community. I will make sure that that is included. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful to chat and to find out more about the legal side of fertility. Thank you so much, Eloise.